0: Good morning. This is Pesach Charney for the Baal Tshuva Show. We now have a time on Wednesday from 11 in the morning to 12 noon in addition to the Sunday 2 to 3 pm show. I'm honored to have Rabbi Y.Y. Rubinstein back. We recorded a show together yesterday. Welcome back, Rabbi Rubinstein.
1: It is an absolute pleasure.
0: Okay, wonderful to have you back. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself. Um, what got you involved in Kirov work and in your writing about various, uh, very important subjects related to Yiddishkeit, Amuna, Bitachon, etc.?
1: Gosh. You've got this habit of asking 12 questions at once, which is very intriguing. Right, how did I first get involved in Kiriv? I was learning in the yeshiva called Gateshead, upon which if you're listening at home, if you look very carefully at your radio, you'll probably notice that the microphone in front of me keeps moving away from me mysteriously because this is not the BBC. Anybody who would like to sponsor a new microphone stand at Hidab or J Roots Radio, please get in touch with Rabbi Peso Charney, who will uh, accept all your money and pass it on to me, and I'll run out the country. Anyway, so I was telling him. So basically I was learn- le- learning in Gateshead of Sheba, and across the river from Gateshead there is a town called Newcastle-upon-Tyne. It's actually a city, uh, whereas Gateshead is a town. You're supposed to say, there's a difference, Rabbi? Yes, Pesach, there's a difference. In England, if you were King Henry VIII, and you look a lot like him, if you were King Henry... Yeah, totally, totally. Same beard, the same thing, and I love the tights. Anyway, so basically, if you were um, King Henry VIII, uh, you decided that if a city had a cathedral then it got to be called a city, and if it didn't, it's a town. So Gateshead doesn't have a town, but Newcastle does. So there were university students, and they were in the Halo House, and it wasn't too long before then that I was a university student, so they said, would I come and give a talk? And so I did, and I enjoyed it, and I suppose that's how I started getting involved in giving talks to university students, and it just sort of came from there, Kirib Rokokim, and I I started working for Orsameach in Yerushalayim for a while. I was the north of England representative of both those great organizations, uh, recruiting people and sending them off for Torah education in Yerushalayim. So I suppose that's how it started.
0: Oh, that's wonderful, Rabbi. So in other words, you have, but you, I just want uh, the audience to be clear, you have experience in Kirib from both ends, in other words, Jews that are were brought up not yet from becoming from, and Jews that were brought up from that went off the derech, bringing them back on the derech. You probably worked with both, right?
1: Oh, very much. I mean, uh, I mean, when I start, look I'm actually uh, very, very ancient. I'm over three hundred at the moment, um, or I feel that way, and that's because your show is so early in the morning. But basically, um, when I started, there was no, there was no issue of kids going off the derech. It was only care of rechokim. Um, and so I was. I started really doing this in the 70s, which was really the height of the Kirov movement. Uh, to, laterally though, things have changed and we're losing huge numbers of kids. I, I felt it was very important when I was working in, in Kirov and on campus because I officially, I became the official Student chaplain, they called it, the, the campus rabbi for 14 universities in the northwest of England, Manchester and Liverpool, and other universities as well, looking after three and a half thousand kids. Um, I felt during that time, it was very, very important to still see shi'urim in Besiakov's seminaries and Yeshiva Godoyla, because if you're only involved in Kherber in fact, there was a very, very great rabbi, sadly passed away, called Romorka Shekavitsky. And he was the Poisek of Orsameh. Before then, he was in South Africa. He was one of these key figures that turned an entire country through. I mean, unbelievable stuff. I mean, you probably saw that in the press recently. The chief rabbi got the entire population of South Africa to keep Shabbos. I
0: mean, yeah, that was incredible. Absolutely
1: yeah. growing. The Gemara talks about if, if, you, if we keep two Shabbos in a row, the Mashiach comes, which I've learned and, and believe, but you just think, well, how's that going to happen? Well, South Africa shows you that it could happen. Imagine the whole country. They all kept Shabbos. So Remarkus who was the son of the old Getsed Rov. Um, he used to say, if you're involved in Kira Rakhakhim, you have to be very, very machmir with yourself in your own Yiddish kind. Because if you're involved in Kira Rakhakhim, you're all the time looking for heterim. Uh, you're trying to find ways in which a person can more easily perform as a Jew. Well... The interesting thing is that if you're hearing that all the time, it's going to impact on you um, and your own uh, Jewish life might become a little bit too more, uh, too much um, uh, or too easy. So basically it's important. 50% of my time was always dealing with from people and 50% was dealing with, as you use the phrase, not yet from people. Um, and so uh, therefore, now that there is much challenge coming from keeping a kids from as Frum uh, dealing with kids who might want to become from it has to be a split, a 50-50 split. In fact, I just recently launched an organization called The kulabo going into schools, answering questions that Frum kids have. And the, the book that we were dealing with yesterday, the On the Derek book, which you very sweetly have a copy of, um, answers to questions that challenge Jewish minds, that was particularly successful with teachers. And we've all experienced, whether it's in the states or in England, uh, we've all experienced from kids who ask a genuine question in school, in a from school, and get attacked by the teachers for asking the question. Sometimes thrown out the school, which is a disgrace, Um, simply because, if truth be told, the teacher doesn't know the answer. That's the real reason. Well, that book was greatest, most great success. The most, the greatest success of that book was with teachers because they felt. The twenty-one real or authentic questions in the book and the, t- and the twenty-one answers, for the first time for many of them, equip them to answer the questions that the kids had. So, uh, part of what I'm I'm trying to do uh, is go into schools, um, from schools, basic schools, etc and run sessions. If it's not overtly I'm here to answer your Hashkofa questions, I certainly uh raise some important questions which I know they're thinking, like Sadik Baralo, why the very bad things happen to very good people, and I'm able to answer them as well. It's important therefore to keep your fing your 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 feet in both um dance at two chasnas. If you're involved in Ker you've got to be, I think, involved in Kira Karavim as well. If nothing else for yourself, you've got to keep your own Yiddishkeit um challenged and growing.
0: I agree, Rabbi. And uh, maybe that's a challenge, at least in uh, some of the yeshivas, that these issues need to be raised.
1: Look, look, we're not, we are very, very conservative people, a very conservative community. So for those out there who are starting to get very uh, uh, upset, even at the thought of answering a, a legitimate question, I would like to say a couple of things. First of all, it's a Rashi and the Chumash. In the Seder of Mishpatim, uh, the verse says, these are the statutes which will lay before them. Rashi is intrigued by the phrase, which will lay before them. Um, shouldn't it say, which will teach them? And Rashi says, no, and says an incredible thing. There was a statement made by Hashem, no less, to Moshe Rabbeinu. And he said, don't think you'll teach the Jewish people the Halacha once, twice, three times until you know of my heart, and you won't bother yourself to tell them the reason why the halacha is like it is, is to be like a shulchan orach, writes Rashi, like a set table, there's, there's a bell that should start ringing, if the salt's needed, it's salt's on the table, the peppers on the table, the mice, the forks, the plates, everything you need for the meal's there, you've got to, if you're, if you're teaching Torah, you've got to have all the answers available. Now, that has to apply to our children in yeshivas, high schools, etc. They've got to have the answers. It also says in pirke Obaz, Da Mashatosh toshav la'api And the opening words of the classic, Maseelah Shasharim are Yisoyed ha'chassidas b'shorosh ha'avoyed ha'tamimibush Barabis amaset et salodamach ha'bazabahoylam The fundamental of being a Jew is to know, and to, or to be able to know, and to ask the question why. And incidentally, as I told yesterday when we were talking, I think the most exciting words I know are, I don't know. I don't know is an invitation to think, well, that's a good question. I want to know. I'll go away and find out. And all the questions in that book, the 21 questions, are all real questions. Some of them I did know the answers to, but some of them I didn't. And it was great for me as the, as the author, you know, researching and finding the answers to some of these really good questions. So we should be, we should be equipping our teachers And we should certainly be bringing into schools uh, good people like uh, Rabbi Mechanic and uh, people who specialize in speaking in the language which Frum kids will understand, uh, at the same time answering their questions.
0: So dealing with Hashkafa, it's a central part of Judaism, the intellectual curiosity and probing into these questions. It's It's a healthy process.
1: Yeah, and I don't want to knock anybody else's religion, but don't forget in medieval Europe, the Reformation, uh, the attack within Christianity in itself was because um, the Protestants felt that the the fact that only the priests got to read the Bible, which was chained and kept in the church, was not acceptable. Um, The idea of not allowing people to ask the questions, this is not a Jewish perspective. Right. This is a Christian perspective perspective. Again, this is Rashi and the Chumash. That's pretty fundamental, pretty mainstream Karedi. And then we've got Emishna and Pirkei And then we've got Maseel I stand with those three adim behind me and quite confident that answering the questions is the right thing to do. People, incidentally, some say, but if you let them ask questions, that will introduce to other people questions which they weren't aware of. I just actually, a friend of mine just told me that he took that question just last week to this to from Chaim Kanievsky. And he said, that's not a concern. Chaim, of course, is one of, perhaps the greatest of the generation, certainly the top three. Um, he says, that's not a concern. If you think your kids aren't going to have the questions or hear the questions anyway, as as a phrase I've learned in America, I like it. Duh. Uh, yeah, that's a, a duh moment. You are. Go, they are going to get these questions. thrown at them, a curtain. So let them have the answers.
0: I agree, Rabbi. And I just want to mention, again, this is Pesach Charney for the Wednesday morning edition of the Balchuva show. And I'm honored to be here with Rabbi Y.Y. Rubenstein. You mentioned, by the way, in jest, about the uh, contribution for the microphone stand. We are actually very much in need of funds at the radio station. Anybody that would like to contribute, please text us at three four seven nine two seven eight three nine eight to continue this wonderful Torah Dica programming. Not only my show, but many other wonderful shows. Rabbi Goldwasser, Rabbi Wickler, Rabbi Griper, and many, many others. So you can text us at 347-927-8398 if we would like to contribute to JRoot Radio. It's tax-deductible. It's a tax-deductible contribution. I would also like to mention that if you want to call in and ask some questions to myself or to Rabbi Rubenstein, perhaps about Kiruv or about something else, you can call in at 718-683-5858 on live on the studio line or text in... Questions or comments at three four seven nine two seven eight three nine eight. Rabbi Rubenstein, this reminds me of what you were saying now of Chapter 6 of On the Derech In Kirov, how do you deal with uh, questions related to... I'm sorry, it's Chapter 5. What should we think when the outside world seems so tempting? How do you deal with questions in that area when you're dealing with, when you're dealing with uh, Jews not yet from Jews who are looking to go on the derech, or from Jews that are going off the derich and or have serious questions about Yiddishkeit and these kinds of temptations?
1: I, write, I actually wrote about this in a chapter in one of my other books, in my first book, which is called Dancing Through Time. When there, what, there have been certain times in Jewish history where Jews have fled from the Jewish people. Um, certainly at the time of the Haskalah, uh, so we're talking the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, the movement was completely in the opposite direction. Millions, literally millions of Jews were leaving what they were or what they had been behind. If people do that, generally there is a reason. And the reason is that something out there promises a better tomorrow. So if they're leaving there today, it's because, oh, there's a better tomorrow. So people believed in socialism. Jews certainly did. Don't forget the Bund, Jewish Socialist Party, etc.
0: And the apparatchiks in the former Soviet Union, a lot of them were Jews, unfortunately. A lot
1: of the founders of the Soviet Union were Jews, and there was even a Jewish section of the Communist Party called the Avsaktsia. And it was the Avsaktsia that was responsible for rounding up the rabbis and rounding up the teachers and sending them to Siberia or having them shot. And Stalin expressed his gratitude to the Avsaktsia after they'd completed their work by standing them against a the wall and machine gunning them. Thank you very much. Um, so there is no shortage of, um, of people out there who are looking for or have been looking for a better tomorrow. If they are, there's something wrong with their today. But the interesting thing is I used to struggle with this. Why are, and I wrote this first book 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, I was struggling with what's wrong with today that so many kids want to leave why do they see out there as being so much better? Because it isn't. Any rational analysis and comparison of um, our world to the world out there it just un- honestly doesn't hold water. Let me tell you an interesting story. I remember a number of years ago because when I lived in the UK, and in fact, even today I still broadcast regularly on BBC Radio, um, something called Radio 2, Medium audience of about 15 million people, which I know is slightly less than the J Roots Radio audience, but, you know, 15 million people. And I, um so basically I got a phone call once from a fellow who was a TV producer, and he was starting to do, or he wanted to start a a series called The Weekend, which would be exploring what various people, various groups do with their weekend. So he, because he'd seen me in radio and TV, or heard me in radio and saw me in TV, he wanted me to become an advisor on the program. And I said, sure. So the first program was going to be following a group of Manchester United soccer fans to see what they did with their weekends. Not a lot of surprises there. <laughs> the next one was going to be going with a group of very rich people who have yachts and sail at the weekends and then have cocktails, you know, in the in the boathouse afterwards. Very nice. Very posh. And the third one he sent to me he wants to do about the Sabbath. And then he added, I know something about the Sabbath because my father was a priest. I said, fine. So we arranged for him to come and meet me. And when I hung up the phone, I thought, it can't possibly be. Because he said his name was James Runsey. And when he came to see me, I found that my suspicion was correct. He said his father was a priest. His father was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the head of the Anglican Church. So mm-hmm. that's about 160 million people in the world. And part of the program was he interviewed me, and we talked about Shabbos, we talked about what Jewish families are, or rather could be, and should be, and the fact that we sing, we sing with our kids, all families used to sing, or many families, only Jews sing anymore, the fact that we actually, at least one day a week, sit down with our kids at the table, it gives you a chance to recall their first names, which is really nice, Um at the end of an hour-long interview, TV interview, having heard what Jewish people are, then the son of the Archbishop of Canterbury asked me the following question. He said, Rabbi why, why? I'm not Jewish. None of the film crew here are Jewish. Is there anything we can have that's like Shabbos? And I said, I'm sorry, James, there's, there's only Shabbos. And then this was his last question. He said, as I said, I'm not Jewish. None of us here, there's three people, the cameraman, the the sound man and some girl. We're not Jewish. Is there any hope for us? Can you believe that? Is there any hope? Wow. This is from the, the son of a prince of the church. But when he heard what we have,
0: and the Simcha and the joy and Judaism and Shabbos can, and the Zmiros and a, the Hey, can we
1: get it? Or, and when he, saw, he found out that he couldn't get it, is there any hope for us? I said, to, I was embarrassed, I said, James, you don't have to be us. You just have to be the best you that you can be.
0: Well, they're the seven Noahide laws. The
1: seven Noahide laws. But leaving that aside, the interesting thing was when he heard, and he incidentally, I mean, he's, he's in the media. Uh, if you've heard of something called J.K. Rowling. Yes. Right. She wrote the Harry Potter books. Right. In fact, I just wrote another book, which, which is on Amazon, called The Queen's Lives, The Secret Diaries of Queen Elizabeth II, which is just a funny book for everybody. But I had to get permission from Buckingham Palace and Her Majesty the Queen to write it. But as she likes me, that's that was easy, um, and also J.K. Rowling because she features in the book. Now, my friend James, he did the documentary in J.K. Rowling. He's he's well known. He's a well known filmmaker. He's in there, out there in the world. He's successful in the media. Yeah, he's he's a playwright. He, he's well known. You would have thought that the world is his oyster, and yet when he hears about Shabbos and what a Jewish family can be and should be, is there anything we can have that's like Shabbos? Or is there any hope for us? So I think basically uh, what I say in that, in that book is you can speak to lots of people who were in that world right, and then simply make a comparison, but it does beg the question, what if our world is not good? Let's be frank, things go wrong. What if we let ourselves down? What if we let our kids down? What if communities don't react appropriately? When cases of sexual molestation, abuse of all sorts of kind, uh, 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 kinds occur. Look, if the Jew. If a Jew That's a chapter also about what goes
0: wrong in the Haredi world
1: a hundred percent. on the 100%. Yeah. Look, it, the, I started this book um, from an article which I used to write for Hamadiyah and I write for Mishpacha magazine. But I wrote a, an article in Hamadiyah about why kids go off the derrick, and I cited three reasons. I missed out one of the reasons, but the one reason was because they come from difficult family backgrounds. Now, that's the one I don't get the most. When you consider there was a guy called Abraham, Abraham Ben Terach. Maybe you've heard of him. Right. Now, I don't know if your father, we've only met twice now, so I don't know much about your, your background, but did your father ever informing you to the authorities, got you put no. into a dungeon for 10 years?
0: And no. Then, no?
1: And then burned alive? At, no, no. no, no. no. <laughs> well, Avramus did. I mean, in other words, in modern terminology, Avramovino came from a dysfunctional family.
0: Yeah, that's an extreme understatement. <laughs>
1: extreme understatement. Um, then there was Yitzkok, and uh, Yitzkok is, uh, you know, he's got a brother called, well, Shmone and Yakovsky, Aesop, has got they all had difficult backgrounds. You can overcome a difficult background. And even if the community lets you down, you make sure you don't let, when you become a member of the community, you don't let other people down. It's not an excuse to run away. It's an excuse to change and improve and challenge.
0: Right. We all have to do that. Absolutely. We have a call, Rabbi Rubenstein. So uh, thank you for calling. This is Pesach Charney for the Wednesday edition of the Balchuva Show. Do you have a question or comment?
2: Yes, hi. Um, I have a comment about um, what happens in, in the from schools nowadays. The children are learning a lot of uh, Chumash, Navi, and Halacha, and of course that's very, very important. But the level of um, interest in spirituality is very, very low. It's probably due to the, you know, Hashem is hiding himself nowadays very much, and it's people are just not interested in, in spirituality that much. They're more interested in having fun and pleasure. That's basically what people are... Looking for nowadays, and I think it's very important that uh, somebody like Robbie Rubenstein or other people similar should insist. They should approach the principals and the, uh, you know, uh, of the Msiftas and the high schools, and the yeshivos, and insist that that they come in and speak to the kids because. Um some of these schools are very, very from they think like, Oh, well, nothing with our kids. Uh, they come from good families, uh, they're fantastic, like they nothing with the Hashkafas, but really they don't know what's going on inside their kids' minds. They could be totally messed up or totally mm-hmm. not interested in the other they but just going through the motions. And it's very, very important that they, you know, come, the uh, rabanim come to the school and speak to them, teach them about emuna Bitochon and all kinds of, you know, different questions about Heshkoffa. And this way you could catch the children before they go off to Derech HaShem, or even if they don't go up to Derech, they're just going to be like empty Jews, you know, just going through the motions. So I think it's very important that you insist, not just call up and ask, oh, it would be, you know, would it be of your interest if we come? You should really convince them that it's very, very important to come to the school to speak to the kids.
1: Very, very interesting question. Sorry, who's this?
2: Um, I'm, uh,
1: um, I'm from Bar Park and my name is Gitty. Gitty. Well, Gitty, I completely agree with you. As I say, when I started this organization, it was to to do exactly that. Rabmatasyol Solomon, Shlita in Lakewood, 10 years ago, came up with an idea in which he argued that every from school should have a Mashgiach in it, um, like they have in big yeshivas, who is equipped to answer the questions and also to look out for kids that are in trouble for whatever reason and help them. At the time, he told me, nobody was willing to take up the idea. Now, because the Manalim of various schools simply did refuse to believe that, you know, that their schools have any troubled kids. I would think these days when almost when a lot of the Manalim themselves have got kids who are struggling and some have gone off the derights it's far harder to sustain that idea. I can't tell you where, but I got a phone call from a very from school just a few weeks ago in the New York area. And the lady said, we need you to come into the school, said the men highlights. We need you. I've got girls in my school who haven't davened since they were eight years of age. Wow. They go through the motions, but they haven't done. I think there are more and more good people, open-minded people, who realize this is urgent. We need to have talented people going into the schools. It, not only that, we should be teaching our, our teachers how to answer these questions. In fact, I was talking to a, Rebison, a wonderful lady called Sippy Reifer, who lives in your neck of the woods, and she and I are trying to put together a, a program exactly to do that, to teach teachers how to answer these questions. But you're 100% right. Uh, look, here, I think we you can almost... Uh, Reb Yurokham says, when he's talking about Saras, you know, which comes from loss and horror, but it comes out in bumps and lumps all over people. He says, Simonim has tumour. There are signs which tell you that something is wrong. If you find a school that is resistant to having real uh, people who can do this uh, active in their schools, there's something fundamentally wrong with those schools. And I certainly wouldn't send my kid to a school where they're going to be laughed at or persecuted for asking a question. I think it's a movement. I think which it's a it's a snowball which has started to tumble downhill. It's going to be very very few, indeed, that are able to resist the obvious conclusion that we need to address this issue. And if you find a school that's still pretending that it isn't an issue, or an organisation that says it's not an important thing to support, well, that's a school which mm, don't send your kids to it. Right. I agree. Um,
2: just wondering, would I know it sounds. Uh, Maybe like a strange thing to do, but maybe it's possible just to just compile a list of all the misfits and the in the you know in the New York area and just get somebody to call them up and say we'd like to come down to your school to speak to the kids because they won't approach you. They're, they think they're like perfect and nothing wrong with their kids. They don't realize what's going on, unfortunately, because many, maybe many years ago the kids were fine, and probably wasn't so fine years ago too, but much more than than it is now. But they have to be approached and, and forced into letting people come in
0: to speak to the kids. Giddy, I want to mention something. This is Baisak Charney. Yes. Uh, I wanted to say, you know, there is some resistance in some of the yeshivas in the administrations to uh, having teachers talk about and maybe also people come in to talk about these kinds of Hashkafic questions. There is some resistance to that. So we have to also deal with the mindset that resists it.
2: Right, so what you do is you go to a guy let's say you said Rabbi Matzio Salman or something, and you get his hasgama and they say, uh, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Matzio Salman said that it's very important for us to come to speak in each school to speak to the kids, and then they can't say no. How could they say no to such a thing?
1: Well, I mean, I actually got hasgama from Rabbi Matzio, for my initiative, which is called the Kulabov, based on the famous statement of Bin Bagbag bag at the end of the mm-hmm. Fifth Peric, bada, turn the Torah over and turn it over again, because everything's in it. That means every answer is there. And there's a wonderful Rabbi Jung in, in Muncie who's got an organisation doing this work sort of work as well. But it has to be a growing area. Um, so I have Haskamas for this from Ramatisil Solomon and Rabbi Twersky in Milwaukee, and I'll be working on this. But maybe as a parent, I'm assuming you're a parent, um, oh. then you can be telling other parents, you know, We need to make sure that our kids are hearing good stuff from people who know how to answer the questions. And Bovrachet, there's quite a few of them out there who can do this. Talented people who know the answers to the real questions that kids have have to be brought into the schools. It's as simple as that.
0: And then as you as parents collectively should then speak to administrations at your yeshivas and base yaakovs and really insist on having those things taught and discussed in the yeshivas.
1: Yes. And it can be done certainly in a way where, you know, there's compromise here. If a yeshiva is still of the old mindset, still playing the silly game that our kids are not troubled by these questions, uh, I mean, I certainly hope I, and certainly Rabbi Young, has the sensitivity to go in there and just give a talk, but raise the questions without necessarily um, pointing out that that's what we're doing. Raise the question and give the answer. And uh, it started that way. I want, and I'm not trying to sell the book. In fact, I think that Pace has been quoting is now a print. I have to reprint it. Sold out. There's a good indication that this is a real, a real question with that people are looking for answers for. But you know, there are books, and there are tapes, and there are whatever it is these days, DVDs, CDs, whatever, uh, where the answers can be found. I think Project Inspire does a good job also, incidentally, of uh, equipping people to have answers that maybe they can use for their own kids, let alone uh, their ambition, which is to reach out to other people. But certainly, uh, you are 100% right. I believe very strongly that talented people, uh, and there's lots of them, who can answer and inspire have to be brought into the schools.
2: Thank you very much. You should have a lot of Hatzlach in your work. Thank you so thank much. You,
0: and thank you for listening uh, to the Baal Tshuva show and to J.Root Radio, Giddy. And thank, thank you. you for calling. Okay, hatzloche. Thank you. We have another call, Rabbi Rubenstein. Thank you for calling uh, the Baal Tshuva show with Pesach Charney. I'm here with Rabbi Y.Y. Rubenstein. Thank you for listening. Do you have a question or a comment?
2: Uh, you're talking to me? Yes. Yeah, uh, I'd like to speak to Rabbi. Why, why Rubinstein off the air, possibly?
0: Yeah, I mean we can we can arrange that. Yeah. All right, All right so we'll uh, we'll continue, Rabbi. Um, why don't you tell the audience about your experience as a broadcaster on BBC? television and radio, as an Orthodox Jew, how does that work? How are you able to combine those uh, two roles?
1: It was very interesting because BBC, it was um, um, basically the, I was the only Orthodox Jewish voice that regularly appeared in BBC National TV and radio in the UK. And uh, so it was a big responsibility. Uh, However, I have to tell you, I enjoyed it very much. The, The largest show and the BBC in those days was called the Terry Wogan show. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of somebody called Oprah Winfrey. Oh yeah. You've heard it. Well, I, I actually have, not well I have, but, I, I've, but apparently she was, the, she was the big lady in, in TV, so he's the big guy in the UK. So I was a regular in his show and, uh, I enjoyed it very much. It also was a wonderful passport into the lives of Jews who might not necessarily have connected with a rabbi or Judaism because if they see you on TV, Especially if you're cracking jokes, um, then they think, "Ah, well, he's approachable, or, or Judaism's approachable. And when my, in my care of uh, activities on campus, you know it broke down the stereotype straight away that I was, you know, a, um, a, an Orthodox rabbi. I mean, gosh, I'm a, an Orthodox rabbi who's on TV all the time. So that made, it, that made the whole project more, more approachable. But very often I was brought in to talk on serious stuff like the Middle East and Israel. I always insisted on in going live. Golden rule: If you record, um, either video or or audio, uh, the editor can make you say whatever you like. Um, so you have to be very, very careful. That means, of course, you have to be, you know, you have to be uh, quick in your feet. I remember as once uh, at the BBC, was just using their studios for a live interview with radio, Irish national radio, um, oh, was, powder keg. Yeah. It was supposed to be on in Dublin and it was supposed to be in the middle East. So there I was. And, uh, and of course it was like a studio like this. I just had headphones and a microphone. I didn't know that instead of one person interviewing me, there was a panel of people and an audience. So the woman said, Rabbi Rubinstein, uh, welcome to the show. Now, many of us here in Dublin I feel that the way that the Palestinians are being treated by the Israelis is very reminiscent of how the Nazis treated the Jews. Oh, boy. Um, So I wanted to quote to her somebody called Conor Cruz O'Brien, who was a famous Irish diplomat to the UN, and he pointed out that if anybody draws a comparison between Israelis, Jews, and Nazis, you're talking to somebody who is an anti-Semite. I said, you could maybe compare the treatment of the Palestinians by the Israelis as being similar to the treatment of the Irish by the English when they occupied that country. But nobody ever accused the English of trying to completely destroy the Irish as a people, setting up concentration camps, extermination camps. That just never happened. And when you make that leap from a logical comparison to a hysterical and irrational comparison, I'm afraid Madam I said to her she was called Mary, of course I'm afraid Mary you are smitten with the disease of anti-Semitism that was the last time I was invited back to that program actually uh, but it's it's it was a big responsibility um it's a responsibility to represent the Jewish people well and it's a responsibility to uh, um, at the same time defend the Jewish people when we're attacked so I enjoyed I broadcast on BBC radio for on TV for 20 years, and I had my own shows, TV and radio, I wrote shows, and still do, I still broadcasting on BBC.
0: That's wonderful, that's wonderful, Yashar Koch. We, by the way, we have a text message, and interestingly, Rabbi, it's about one of your chapters, and on the Derech. let's see here, it says, <laughs> I just turned on the radio and heard that Rabbi Rubinstein is on. A while back, he wrote in Mishpacha that someone asked him to explain the mitzvah of Machias Amalek. This actually has bothered me since 11th grade, and I am now 26, a 26 year old mother. I was wondering what answer he gave to this question.
1: I'm very glad you asked that, because now that you're a 26-year-old mother, you can surely afford to go to the bookshop and buy a copy of On the Derach. I mean, because it's not just the answer to one question, but another 20 questions. Um, the question was actually not just what but mitzvah was, but what happens? I mean, how is it justified to kill a baby, an Amalekite baby? That was the, this was the question that really troubled me. They've done nothing wrong. In finding the answer, it's too long, actually. Please forgive me because I don't have your name. It doesn't say it there, so forgive me. Uh, I don't have the time on the show to answer it properly. However, quite seriously, if you don't, if you can't get hold of the book, if you email me, you can go to my website, which is rabbiyy.com. I will send you the chapter so you can read it through uh, for free. And if you're stuck after that, you can email me and we'll try and solve it together.
0: Thank you for the text message. Now, we have another text message, Rabbi, it says, The main problem is teaching people how to listen non-judgmentally, validate, accept, affirm, see the good, and reflect it. Answering people's questions is a way to show respect, acceptance, and validation. Also to help people not to be robotic, to think more about our relationship with Hashem.
1: Well, I agree one hundred percent with that. It's not really a question; it's a statement. So, all I can tell you is I agree. Um, you know, there's. It's funny. I was just talking about this the other day. Uh, there's so many people today. There is psychologists and psychiatrists and counselors, and now there's something called life coaches. I'm not terribly sure what that is, etc. Um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. It's a
0: good way to make money.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm sure it's a very. <laughs> I'm sure it's a very good way to make money. Really, i um Anyway, but basically. A lot of people just go to somebody because they need somebody to talk to. And just the greatest chesed you can sometimes do, the kindness, the greatest and nicest thing you can sometimes do for somebody, is just to let let them talk to you. Now, sadly, I, I was just at a weekend for a wonderful weekend from an organization called FroomDivorce.com. And somebody made a joke when they spoke Friday night that some non-Jewish people were looking at the, the, the posters. And saying, look at these Jews, they don't know how to spell the word from. They've misspelled it. They thought it was from divorce. <laughs> I actually thought that they should change the title of from divorce to from divorce. Because you want to go from divorce onto the next stage in your life. But I met a lot of people there who are in indeed a lot of pain. Um And uh, it was just, you know, even if you don't have the answers... Uh, or you can't solve the problems you can give a, a person a lot of chizek just by sitting down and listening to them. So our friend here writes that you are validating some, detecting them, affirming them by listening to them. problem obviously is that if you're if you're at all like me, there are lots of lots of people who want to tell you their story. And one just honestly runs out of time. Uh, the You know, the real greats, not just a very tiny rabbi, but the Godalim, Robert Cohen, Robert Pilsky, Robert the, the ones that are, that easily come to mind in our neighborhood or in our, our region, they are snowed under, totally snowed under. I once tried to find the Minsk Arabi about something, and he just honestly couldn't listen to me. He was, you know, I mean, he's one of the Godalim, he's, as they say in Yiddish, he's got an empire of of, of Torah that he is trying to run. And why, YY Rubinstein's phoning up to tell him about my wonderful idea of going into schools. He didn't have time for me. They they, they are really busy. Look, if you've are, if you got time, and look, Chesed should not be charged for, it, incidentally. Uh, all you budding uh, life coaches out there. Um, if you can listen to somebody and you can help them. Look, if you got to make Pernosa, that's one thing. But I think there's a lot of people out there who could be doing the chesed of listening to somebody, and as our friend writes here, accepting them, respecting them, and giving them some validation.
0: That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Uh, now, Rabbi, another um, interesting question from your perspective is you've worked in Kirov in the United States and in the United Kingdom, in the British Empire, so to speak. <laughs> how, are the, how are the two areas different? Um, in terms of Kirov and how they evolved differently over the years.
1: Well, I'm glad you said the British Empire, because this gives me an opportunity to say to your listeners, this is a great chance now for you to come back under Her Majesty the Queen and make her uh, your head of state. And and I know you think I'm being flippant, but be honest. Who would you rather have as your head of state? Barack Obama or Queen Elizabeth II? Now, be, be frank here. Yes, I know what you've answered. Yes, so I am. Um, I don't know if you know the, the Queen came to Manchester in England, which is where I used to live uh, until I moved here three years ago. And she came to and was presented to the Jewish community. There was a big line of people all waiting to shake her hand, and the president shook her hand. And after he did, he did so. She said, "Is Rabbi Why Why here?" And he said, "Oh no, ma'am. Eh, what a pity. We listen to him all the time on the radio, and we think he's awfully good." So there you are. And the pace of Charney showed not just any old rabbi he gets. Now he gets a rabbi the queen likes. So that is <laughs> uber cool. So I think basically this is, this is a chance. The British Empire. Yes, I think we should reestablish it here in the United States of America. Make the queen your new head of state. Get rid of that fellow Barack Obama. Um, and I could be perhaps the, I don't know, her representative. Maybe I could take over from Barack. Um, I'm willing to consider this. As long as we have a, a reasonable remuneration, that 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 would that would be good. Uh, but there's clearly big differences between uh, lecturing in America and lecturing in the UK, and also, incidentally, Canada. I just came back from Canada, which I'm very fond of. My first time there, I made the enormous mistake. <laughs> of thinking that Canadians are basically Americans. Ho, ho, ho! No, they no, are not. No, no, no. No, 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 no. No, they are not. And they are very, very keen to point this out to you. In the same way as if you were to say to me, in which part of England is Scotland, I would not be happy with you. No, no, no. <laughs> I am Scottish, racially superior to everybody else. That's the difference. Now, and you've got to know what the difference is when you're when you're talking to... Um, an audience, for example, when I speak in Switzerland, <laughs> no humor, please. You're not allowed to use any humor. This is offensive to this, this ear, this, this mind. It's actually it's a serious professional point. Wherever I go and lecture in the world, sometimes I'm in Israel. We have here the guy in the studio. He's Israeli. He's when he's not here, busy pressing the Palestinians or whatever he's doing. He speaks like Israelis got a good sense of humor. Um, everybody except the Swiss, really. Uh, you got to know. you got to know what they're like because that's going to tailor the approach which you have to uh, conveying the, the tarot ideas that you're trying to get across.
0: Right. So how, how is... Um, not only how is Kirov different in the United States compared to the United Kingdom, how is Kirov changing? You were saying that uh, Kirov was really cresting in the 1970s. So how has it evolved since then?
1: Well, I think it's evolved... Uh, very, very much, and you know, I think lots of commentators talk about the post of world. Um, I think what they mean by that is not that Kira is not there, not that there are not people there who want to discover what Judaism is all about. It's just that the the models that existed before and the way it was done, that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I just heard the other day that Isha Tower has is closed its center in Manhattan. Um, you know, it's. Things have changed. I do quite a lot of work actually here on campuses, uh, which I enjoy very much. Uh, New Jersey. There's a, a wonderful, wonderful guy called Eli Allen. In New Jersey, gets me speaking at, uh, at NYU and YU and various other campuses. There's still people out there, but the techniques have to change because the world's changed. Yeah. Look, the Torah talks about the Jubilee, the Yovel, every 50 years. After 50 years, things change, and the key of the classic key of world started in 1967, the 50 years are up, so that model has changed, and we have to address the new model. You said it yourself before, about you know, uh, uh, kierkegaard Karavan being as equally important today as Kyrgyz because what's the point of saying to somebody, you should become from, like me, so you can watch your kids go off the derrick to where you are now, like me? Uh, that doesn't really, there's no logic to that argument. We, should, we now have to stop and take stock and say, how do we solve the problem of our kids to, so we can honestly say, join our world, because that's where people are happiest and will stay, stay underlined three times, happiest.
0: And then also we were talking about yesterday on the show about how dangerous assimilation is. I think it's underestimated perhaps. I think it is underestimated by at least some Jews. We were talking about how uh, as bad as assimilation is, let's say when a Jew marries outside the faith, it even gets worse than that, and you even have grandchildren that are virulently, actively anti-Semitic.
1: Yeah, well, this is, a, this is an enormous tragedy. Uh, look, it's a big subject, and everybody's got their own unique perspective on why, why they married out. And incidentally, very often, I'm on, the, I'm on the side of the Jew who married out. Bring your kid up with no Jewish education, no Jewish identity whatsoever, and they marry a non-Jewish partner. Why shouldn't they? I mean, you didn't bring them or give them anything. you know? So why shouldn't they marry? out? Uh, the problem is quite seriously. Very often, a person that, when they want to join, leave one world behind and join the new a new world. To establish their credentials in that new world, they very often want to to attack the old one. And uh, we talked yesterday you know, when you broadcast that program about a guy called Frank Collins. Frank Collin, who was the second Führer of the American Nazi Party after Rockwell died, his father was in Auschwitz. He only lasted seven years as the head of the Nazis in America because they discovered their Führer was a was a Jew. But it's possible; it's not inconceivable to imagine that in saying that your children will leave Judaism behind, will find something else instead, and in a world, in the media, in an environment which is increasingly anti-Israel. Which is just a, a code word for anti-Semitism. That um, you might have children, or indeed grandchildren, who are anti-Semitic, or not halachic Jewish, or even halachic Jewish, and are anti-Semitic. By the way, the great whenever there's an anti-Israel motion on campuses all up and down in the United States, States of America, they always wheel out a Jew or two to say, "I'm a Jew and I think the state of Israel, etc., is tri- etc." Cetera, et cetera. There's no shortage of them. I think the state of Israel, in wanting to fund Jewish education in the United States of America, and how weird is that? You probably saw that uh, recently, um, is accepting the fact that losing the Jewish people in the United States of America, Jewishly, is the greatest threat to the state of Israel's survival. Because as the Jewish lobby moves away from wanting to support Israel, the United States uh, government has no reason and no constituency forcing them to do it. So from whatever point of view you take, a religious or a Jewish secular point of view, addressing these issues, reversing this process is absolutely essential.
0: And uh, Rabbi, why do you think, by the way, there is uh, such a strong movement in uh, in what we used to call Great Britain, United Kingdom, uh, boycotting, Israel boycotting Israeli products?
1: First of all, before I answer that, Pesek, you're being very formal. You keep calling me rabbi. Please. Why, remember. why? I prefer your holiness uh, or, you know, <laughs> your eminence. One of those two. Would, that, that would do. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I was pro- I actually spoke, believe it or not, the first anti-Israel debate in Europe when I was a student. That goes back a little while. It was actually in Glasgow, my hometown. Um, and I watched the absolute defeat of, the, of Israel on campus. And generation after generation of people in the media uh, simply moved out um, from there, went into academia, went into radio, TV, etc., with a profound Israel, anti-Israel bias because uh, we lost that battle. I don't think perhaps it, that it really was a camouflage for anti-Semitism. And I argued that being the rabbi to the northwest of England, in fact, I once wrote about this in Hamadea, I think it was Hamadea I wrote, Uh, and said that I'm writing, this was after the Second Lebanon War, I'm writing to you from the front line of Israel's defence. I started out by saying, how do you think we did in the war uh, last year in Lebanon? Not too good. how?" Well, I'm writing to you from the front line of Israel's defence, not the Lebanese border, Manchester University. And in losing those battles, you lose a country. The next logical step, I mean, I can work this one out. I would have told them to do that. The next logical step is to turn Israel into the apartheid state and therefore the boycott. It's just following the pattern of what the left did with apartheid South Africa, ignoring the fact that Israeli Arabs uh, have full representation in the state of Israel in the political process, uh, have MPs, which in Jordan, just across the river, a Muslim state, an Arab state, Palestinians are barred. From many professions and parliament et etc, et etc, the hypocrisy of the anti-Israel movement is vomit inducing
0: yes it's it's a it's a big it's a big problem. Uh, I want to also mention something from my perspective as uh, a relatively newly from Jew. um I've had a lot of people speak to me about this who've become from like myself. Later in life, and they say to me, Okay, both of my parents are Jewish. So they're not assimilated in the sense that they didn't marry outside of the faith of Judaism. But if both of my parents are Jewish and I'm brought up not being very observant, maybe some aspects of Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, Pesach, and Chanukah, how, if my parents, my parents wanted. Uh, well, it's also the case in terms of my parents. They wanted me to marry Jewish, but I also know a lot of other Jews that were brought up as not as f- not from Jews. The parents also wanted them to marry Jewish and raise their children Jewish, but in a non from a non Orthodox perspective. And I have to say, unfortunately, I know many of those Jews who married non Jewish women who assimilated. So my question to you. I will say, I guess, why, why, Rabbi Rubenstein is... Oh, your
1: Holiness. or oh, Your Holiness. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, how do we deal with that problem? You know, people who marry Jewish, but don't keep many of the Torah mitzvahs, and the children end up marrying outside of the faith.
1: I think, look... I've got no criticism, as I say, for somebody who's made that made that move because in all probability they don't know that they shouldn't have made the move. I also want to make very very strongly the point that the, the non-Jewish person, the non-Jewish partner, has done nothing wrong either. Right. Uh, they've got no reason not to marry a Jew. In fact, the fact that they wanted to marry a Jew speaks highly of them. So I'm not. But the point is, you know, if you ever go to a kids' playground, there's a slide. They have got a slide. Right. So if you took a picture of three kids a guy just at the top of the slide, a guy halfway down, and a guy at the bottom. Now, you take the picture, click, and then you say, when you show them to the picture, what do you think happened to those three kids? Well, of course, they all reached the bottom. It's just at that, that particular moment in time, one was an inch from the bottom, one was three yards from the bottom, and one was six yards from the bottom. Okay, But they're definitely on the slide, which inevitably, given the reality of gravity, means they're all going to get there. Once you start that move away from, to quote Natan Sharansky, who might be the next president of the State of Israel, if education is not orthodox, it is doomed, he said. It's incredible. Um, no, but what do you do? I, I can't force that on somebody. I don't want to force that on somebody. It's a decision. When I, when I speak to non-religious audiences, in the UK, I usually put it like this. If I can say, if I can show them That Orthodox Judaism is not what the Jewish Chronicle, that's the anti-Orthodox paper there, um, says it is, I've done a good job. In the United States of America, speaking to a secular audience, if I can show them Orthodox Judaism is not what the forward says it is, I'll consider myself to have done a good job. If they then decide subsequently they want to investigate that, want to walk through that door which I've showed them as open and promise them that there's something good and worthwhile on the other side, they're the heroes, not me.
0: That's wonderful, Rabbi. I don't want to uh, finish the show, which unfortunately is going to end soon, without asking you about Jewish parents who are bringing up their children, their children are adolescents, and they're bringing them up from. how what are your tips? What are your suggestions uh, and resources for those from Jewish parents? how to minimize the risks of, to their adolescent children, the risks, various things that we've mentioned, um, temptations from the outside secular world, uh, and other risks maybe within the from world as well that threaten to knock their children who are now adolescents off the derrick.
1: I'm glad you asked that last bit because it just reminded me. I want to tell all your listeners out here a very simple thing. We all know that we're living in a very sick time. I want to make a very simple suggestion. This is tangential, I accept, but you know how kids have their names embroidered in their yarmulkes? Right. Don't buy such yarmulkes for your kids. You're advertising what their name is so that a predator can come and say, Hello, David. Hello, Shmuel. I'm your daddy's friend. And then lead them away. Don't put your kids' names on their bags, on their yarmulkes, on their... That's just a mistake. Sorry, I just wanted to say that. Another thing I think we can learn um, talking about unpleasant things is Bill Clinton. Yes, the man who brought such um, honour to the White House, but he did manage to defeat an incumbent, George Bush, and when he did so, if you recall, there was one... above his campaign office and it just had three words on it for his workers who were working tirelessly to get him the presidency, and the words were, the economy, stupid. Right. And uh, The truth was that everybody liked George Bush, but uh, people at the time were worried about their jobs and their savings and their mortgages. The economy, stupid. If you're going to get into the Jewish child-rearing business or the frum Jewish child-rearing business, I would like you to put a sign above the, the, uh, the nursery or the room in which your child is sleeping. Make it fun, stupid. Judaism right. has to be fun and enjoyable. I remember my late wife, um, one of my kids was wearing once a tie, which was apparently bright. I don't remember, but a bit, a bit jazzy. And somebody said to her, isn't that a bit too bright? And my wife was a very, my late wife was a very wise lady said, you know, there are so many things we have to say no to. Why say no to things we don't have to say no to, which was clever. Um, we put our kids through a lot, bringing them up from, we challenge them intellectually, academically, we, we want them to go to schools where they're pushed hard, allow them to have fun. There should be laughter in the house. Um, if you're involved in Chesed, make them involved in that process as well. Make them part of what you're doing, part of your Yiddishkeit. That's important as well. And my role, the Gateshead Rav, Zichal Sadei Vachar Rabbi Rakov said, um, it's important for each and every one of your kids to feel the special and to know that the special time set aside for them, make sure each of your kids is given special treatment. they are take, you know, Monday is when you take, you, you take your daughters out and or Tuesday night is when you take your sons out. So whatever it is, give them the feeling they're, that they're special to the parents.
0: That's wonderful. Rabbi Rubenstein. Unfortunately, uh, this show is coming to a close. I hope to have you on again in the near future. I want to thank uh, Rabbi Rubenstein for coming on my show again. This is Pesach Charni for the Balchuva Tshuva show. I want to mention that on the Sunday show from 2 to 3 p.m., coming up this Sunday, February 23rd, I'm looking forward to having Rabbi Tzvi Fried of Young Israel of Bedford Bay. And um, he also works as a psychotherapist. And I want to thank everybody for listening. I hope everybody has a good week, a good vach. Shavua Tov. Thank you so much for coming on. Rabbi Rubenstein, it was very enlightening and very helpful. And I hope everybody keeps listening and also contributing to J Root Radio to support this wonderful Torah Dicah programming. Again, if you want to contribute, you can text in at 347-927-8398.